Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to this Heritage Foundation webinar. Um, uh, today's topic is pandemic ethics, human flourishing during a crisis. Uh, and I'm very fortunate to be joined by uh, four academic expert uh, panelists who will be uh, turning on their uh, webcams as, as I speak. So panelists, please come and uh, join us. Um, my name is Ryan Anderson. I'm a research fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. We're joined today by Dr. Far Curlin, uh, professor Curlin is a, a medical doctor and is a professor at Duke. Uh, he holds appointments in both the med school and the divinity school. Um, he's an expert on bioethics, on the intersection of religion and medicine, on ethics at the end of life, uh, palliative care in particular. Um, we're also joined today by Melissa Moschella. Uh, Melissa, in addition to being a professor of philosophy at the Catholic University of America, is also a visiting fellow here this year at the Heritage Foundation in our Fulner Center uh, in American, uh, uh, um, and I'm forgetting the full title of the Fulner Center, but it's on American I ideals and identity. Uh, we're also joined by Robert George. Uh, Robbie is a professor at Princeton, a professor of jurisprudence. Uh, he's also served on the President's Council on Bioethics. He served on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. He's also a member of the Heritage Foundation uh, Board of Trustees. And then uh, finally, uh, we're joined by Professor Tyler Wanderveel. He's a professor at Harvard. Uh, in their School of Public Health. He's an epidemiologist. Um, when I think of epidemiology, I originally think of uh, the pandemic. We're currently experiencing people who study diseases. He studies the flip side of this. He studies happiness and human flourishing and what does the data show us about human flourishing. And so this group of scholars is really going to be helpful as we think through some of the ethical questions that we are confronted with right now. Uh, how do we think about bioethics of treating patients uh, who are suffering uh, from COVID-19? How do we think about the costs of the measures that we are taking to combat COVID-19? These aren't costless measures as many of us have been experiencing these past few weeks. And then how do we think about the government's response in terms of uh, protecting fundamental civil liberties and human rights? Uh, we've seen some pretty disconcerting stories about religious liberty violations, uh, how do we think about these various uh, trade-offs? Um, so without any further ado, let's just jump right in. And I want to pose the first question uh, to Professor George. What should be kind of the large overarching governing principle as we think specifically about the bioethical questions? Uh, I think we've seen some troubling statements both here in the States and from uh, um, some sources overseas on who would be prioritized for care and who would be put at the end of the line for care. As, as we think about this, uh, and hopefully it won't come to this, it looks like uh, it's not going to be as bad here in the United States, uh, so we won't have to ration care, we won't have to practice triage, but if it did come to that, how should we think about that overarching moral, 
moral principle that governs this? Well, Ryan, uh, thank you, and I'll be happy to tell you what I think that principle is and uh, what it means and how it's to be applied. Uh, first, though, let me congratulate you and Heritage for putting the focus on the ethical questions in the crisis. Of course, there are very important scientific questions, very important economic questions, all of which are related to the ethical questions. But it's very important not to subordinate the ethical issues. Uh, they are equally important. Uh, so thank you for holding uh, this uh, webinar. And it's such an honor uh, to be on uh, with uh, Far and with Tyler and with Melissa, scholars who are uh, so admirable and people I admire uh, so much. That principle, Ryan, that you're uh, pointing toward is the principle of the inherent and equal dignity, profound inherent and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. That's bedrock. The answer to almost every interesting ethical question in any domain begins with that. doesn't end there, of course, because then we have to think about how that principle applies in very different sorts of cases. But the key thing is not to lose sight of the principle, not to lose our grip on the principle, the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. What that means, if I can borrow a phrase from the uh, 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 great uh, 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant, is that human beings are not means to other ends. Human beings are the ends to which other things are means. And we cannot relegate anybody, however weak, vulnerable, poor, uh, whatever uh, deficiencies they may have, whatever they may be lacking, we cannot relegate them to inferior status because their dignity, their value, their fundamental value uh, is no less than anyone else's. That's what it means to have inherent dignity, inherent and equal uh, dignity. So for example, in the current pandemic, should it come to a circumstance in which we have to, in effect, do triage, we have to ration uh, medical care in a particular area or devices that are essential for life-saving, say ventilators, should that happen, We'll be tempted, people are tempted, human beings are tempted to begin dividing the world up into superiors and inferiors. People are tempted to discriminate invidiously, that is on the basis of, of criteria that are contrary to that principle of the profound inherent and equal dignity of every member of the human family. Most particularly, I think, with this particular kind of crisis, and in the case that I'm speculating about. I hope we don't get there, but in the case that we might have to face, the temptation will be to put people who are aged, who are elderly, or people who are disabled, suffering cognitive impairment or physical disabilities in an inferior class and to uh, discriminate invidiously against them. That absolutely has to be uh, resisted. And uh, the four scholars who are uh, on this call are among uh, the 20 plus scholars who put out uh, a statement that you joined as well, Ryan, uh, reminding our countrymen and our public officials of the importance of clinging to that principle of the inherent and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family and resisting the temptation to discriminate on the basis of age or uh, disability and allocation of scarce medical resources. Beyond that, in our public policy, we just have to bear in mind human dignity, and human equality. We cannot fall into what's sometimes called a utilitarian 
way of thinking where we imagine that the correct policy is the one that does the greatest good for the greatest number, as if uh, human beings could be weighed and measured in their value in a way that would make that principle workable. There's a, there's a much looser sort of colloquial sense of the word uh, utilitarian, uh, which just means be practical or, or be pragmatic. And there's certainly room for pragmatic, practical, we would say prudential judgment judgments uh, among reasonable options where one has to be chosen because they're mutually exclusive. Uh, but we can't, on the basis of ethical criteria, narrow the options to a single one. Yes, prudential judgment uh, is required uh, by ourselves, by our public officials, but we mustn't be utilitarians in that strict philosophical sense in which we imagine that we can operate according to a greatest good of the greatest number uh, principle or something like that. Great, thank you. Thank you, Robbie. Um, Far, let me turn to you. Um, with the, the guardrail that kind of Robbie just uh, set in place, the, the moral principle here is focusing on the inherent, intrinsic, and equal dignity of every member of the human family and refusing to kind of succumb to quality of life considerations, utilitarian calculations, discrimination on the basis of age or disability. What moral principles should a doctor deploy if it were to come to how do we triage, how do we uh, prioritize care? Uh, as a medical physician, you know, what are you thinking about as you determine how do I use scarce resources uh, to benefit my patients if I don't have enough resources uh, to treat everyone? To thank you, Ryan. I think in a word that principle that Robbie described of respecting the inherent and equal dignity of all persons as it cashes out in a clinical situation that thankfully, as we said, we're not facing yet, at least in the United States, but we're all preparing for the possibility of, would mean that the physician is not picking winners and losers in terms of which lives are worth saving, in which people it is worthwhile to preserve and restore health. Rather, they are making judgments, and these will be difficult judgments, judgments for which the public, I hope, will have some patience as people of goodwill struggle through them, but judgments about in which people can health be restored, in which people can a life be preserved. That's the kind of clinical judgment that physicians have always had to make. Um, it's a judgment about when the medical resources that are available, the technologies that are available, the treatments that are available are likely to actually benefit the person in front of them in a way that's at least proportionate to the kinds of burdens treatments. So when there's scarcity, that's a new situation. And um, there have been some, some efforts to try to pull the decision-making or the triaging back from the bedside so that the physician who's caring for a patient is not having to make the judgment between patient A and patient B, but whoever's making that judgment needs to be making the judgment based on who is likely to benefit, not whose life is worth benefiting. That's a, that, that strikes me as a really essential distinction, uh, the distinction between whose life is worth benefiting versus which medical interventions will benefit a life and all of the lives being uh, of equal and inherent uh, dignity. Um, Melissa, I wanna bring you in. Um, as a professor, you, know, you teach bioethics at CUA. Um, is there anything else that you would wanna add 
um, to this discussion uh, with Robbie and Farr we're just having. And, and then also, I, I wonder, um, some people might be tempted to think, well, look, if we can't save everyone and some people might have to forego these life-saving interventions, how is that any different uh, than euthanasia or assisted suicide? And, and um, maybe ex uh, explaining that distinction, uh, the distinction between intentional killing and then uh, um, recognizing that with limited resources and with this limited technology, right? Some people, unfortunately, uh, the disease uh, will prove to be fatal. How, how do we think about uh, those considerations? Thanks, Ryan. I think that's a really, really crucial question. I think one of the implications of that bedrock principle that Robbie articulated, that fundamental equal dignity of every human being, uh, has has the implication that every human being has a right to life, meaning that it's always wrong intentionally to kill another human being, that that would be a violation of a failure to respect the equal dignity of, of all human beings. And in medical ethics, that also means that, as Farr was saying, we should never be making decisions about treatment, whether it's who gets a scarce treatment, or even in a particular instance, you know, is this treatment worth uh, undergoing for a particular patient, even absent a, a situation of scarcity? We should never be making those decisions with the mentality, oh, is this person's life worth saving? Does this person have a quality of life that is sufficient to render them kind of worthy of this treatment or to make this treatment worthwhile for them, right? We should never be judging the quality of a person's life. Uh, instead, any judgments about treatments should be about the relative burdens and benefits of a particular treatment. So it could be perfectly reasonable in many instances to say, for instance, okay, here's a here's a patient with terminal cancer, and maybe there's an experimental treatment that might be available uh, that that might have some marginal benefit, but you know what? It, it also has very significant burdens, and one can reasonably say, you know, the, the patient or and or family could decide. Well, we we just think that that the burdens of that treatment outweigh the benefits of that treatment. That's a perfectly legitimate uh, way of reasoning through medical decisions about whether or not to go through with a with a treatment. But that kind of reasoning is not making any judgment about the person's life. We're not saying, oh, well, you know, in your condition and with the suffering that you're going through because of the cancer, it's not worth trying to preserve your life. That That's the kind of reasoning that would be fundamentally contrary to that bedrock principle of, of fundamental human dignity. And when, when we're thinking about uh, triage decisions, uh, likewise, uh, we should not be thinking about, you know, is a life with of somebody who has a disability worth living or is a life of somebody who is uh older uh worth living or equally worth living by comparison with a younger person those are those are considerations that should be off the table because of that bedrock principle of uh the equal fundamental dignity of every human person so when we're thinking these things through we need to be thinking about well who is most likely to benefit from the treatment in terms of their clinical profile who's most likely to actually recover if we provide the treatment. In a, in a case of scarcity, that's a reasonable uh, way of trying to make that decision. It's not a, not a judgment on the value of a particular person's life. Instead, it's a judgment on who is likely to benefit most uh, from getting this scarce treatment. And when you make those kinds of decisions 
uh, correctly in the way that I that I just outlined, the decision to say uh, refuse uh, an additional line of chemotherapy or the decision to use triage to decide to give the ventilator to one patient over another because the clinical profile of that patient makes makes that patient more likely to be able to actually uh, recover and benefit from the treatment. Uh, those decisions are not decisions to kill or to hasten the death of the patient who doesn't receive the treatment. There's no intention there to kill or hasten death. Uh, there's simply an intention to make the most of a scarce resource um, or to avoid the disproportionate burdens of a particular medical treatment. That's entirely different from the kind of of thinking, the mentality that goes into judgments about euthanasia or assisted suicide. When you're making a judgment about euthanasia or assisted suicide, you're deciding, well, we deem that we or the person himself or herself deem that this person's life is not worth living or not worth saving. Uh, and therefore, we're going to take measures actively uh, to end that life. That's a fundamentally different kind of decision and that uh, does go against that fundamental bedrock dignity of the human person and that fundamental moral principle which flows from that of the wrongness of all intentional killing. Perfect. Thank well, you. Ryan, uh, if I could uh, hop in there, uh, just to sure. add to what Melissa said, because I, I think what she said is so terribly uh, important. Uh, look at the upshot of it. What that means is that you cannot take into account in evaluating what to do that this particular patient, for example, has Down syndrome, uh, and this other patient uh, does not. That this particular patient has an IQ of 90, where the other patient has an IQ of 120. Those can't be taken into account. The only question to be asked there is who will benefit from the treatment? The answer to that might be that the Down syndrome person may benefit more from it than a person who doesn't have Down syndrome but is suffering from some other underlying causes that will impede the ability of the technology or treatment to be effective uh, with the person. So I think that's the thing that we have to bear in mind because here's where the temptation comes. The temptation is to look at that person with Down syndrome or look at that person with dementia or look at that person with muscular dystrophy and say, ah, that's not really a life worth living or it's not as important a life as this strong, healthy, beautiful, highly intelligent other person. That's where we need to avoid that temptation to invade discrimination. Sorry to have jumped in. Oh, no, that, that's perfect. And, and for all the panelists, uh, feel free uh, to jump in. I, I, I want to bring Tyler uh, into the conversation. Um, Tyler, you, you study human flourishing. Um, and obviously, um, the past several weeks have been rough for human beings to flourish. Um, how should we think about some of the trade-offs? How should we think um, we've, we've undertaken pretty severe measures to try to combat COVID-19. Um, they seem to be somewhat effective. Uh, we're flattening the curve, uh, but those me measures had costs uh, and not just to people's 401ks. I think some of the rhetoric around this saying that, you know, if you care about the economy, it means you don't care about grandma. There's been bad rhetoric on both sides of these debates, but Real human beings, their their livelihoods, their flourishing uh, have been at risk. What does the research show just in general about how we flourish, especially inside of communities, as members of families, as employees, as as, as people who are working in dignified work, as members of churches, et cetera, et cetera? Because all of this has really been 
uh, severely limited during the past several weeks. And, and this has to have a, a toll on people. Uh, thank, thank you, Ryan. I do think it is an important question, and, and there has been a great deal of uh, debate over the, the trade-offs between um, health and, and, and life on the one hand and um, economic outcomes on, on the other, and uh, the, the, they are difficult questions. Um, but I, I think there are other aspects of well-being or flourishing that, that are also important to bring into the discussion. Uh, people certainly care a great deal about their health and about um, their income. And, and it's important to put policies in, in place to, as, as best we can, uh, preserve these. But they, they care about more than that in life. They, they care about being happy, about having a sense of, of meaning and purpose, about trying to be a good person and, and, and help others, about their relationships. And the policies we have put in place with regard to social distancing and, and lockdown, of course, have implications for these uh, other aspects of, of well-being um, as, as well. Uh, relationships and, and, and friendships are uh, being restricted as our community uh, gatherings, opportunities to, to help, to volunteer are restricted. Um, work is, of course, for many people restricted, and, and many have lost their jobs, and, and that results not just in a loss of, of, of income, but, but for many, you know, a loss of sense of, of purpose with regard to what uh, they're contributing. Uh, likewise, uh, religious uh, services have, have, for the most part, been suspended, and the, the empirical research on, on this suggests that these things also contribute a great deal to uh, one's one's well-being, uh, certainly spiritually, but but also in terms of um, promoting health and, and longevity, uh, protecting against depression and, and suicide, uh, encouraging generosity and, and civic engagement. So I think as our um, community life is is restricted, there will be uh, ad adverse consequences of um, the, the policies we've, we've put in place um, as, as well. Now, going back to that fundamental principle that of, of the, the dignity and the infinite worth of, of human life, I think given our level of uncertainty, it, it, it is possible that the measures we've taken have, have been necessary in order to uh, preserve the, the lives of others. But I think we really need to work very hard in understanding how necessary these policies are and, and when we can um, effectively uh, relax them. Uh, I, I think the level of un uncertainty at, at present is somewhat um, inexcusable. We, sh we should be doing more representative testing. We should have a better sense of, of infection mort mortality rates so that we can make sensible decisions with regard uh, to the necessity of lockdown, and if it is necessary, how long it, it needs to extend. Uh, certainly preservation of life is, is critical, um, but there are substantial costs uh, with regard to the policies we've put in place, economic costs and, and substantial non-economic costs concerning well-being. And so we, we really need to do uh, more to understand uh, the, the, the nature and the extent to which these policies are necessary to promote these other forms of well-being and flourishing as well. Tyler, may I ask you a question uh, about that uh, as a public health professional and epidemiologist? Uh, I know there is all this uncertainty, but as best you uh, can understand it, uh, do you think that where there's an overestimating of the mortality rate, is that likely, or are we underestimating it more likely? Um, 
So I, I'm not an infectious disease uh, epidemiologist, um, though many of my, my colleagues are. I have, of course, been um, following, trying to follow the, the, the data and their work closely. And I do think there is some chance we are um, substantially overestimating it. Um, we're generally estimating the mortality rate based on those with symptoms. And there is evidence that uh, numerous people uh, may be infected, but, but asymptomatic. And if that proportion is substantial, uh, the, the, the infection mortality rate could be uh, dramatically lower than, than is um, often being re reported. And, and there is some disagreement among um, experts with regard to, to what it is. Um, uh, representative regular testing um, would allow us to get a much better sense of this rather than just testing those who are, who are, systematic, who are symptomatic. And I think doing so would be extremely uh, important. I think systems uh, should be put in place and should have been put um, in place uh, so that we would know more clearly uh, what those mortality rates are and, and be able to navigate these very different difficult decisions um, in a much more adequate manner. Just a, a brief word on that to add, it, this, it's not to minimize, but very practically speaking, the, it's not just that people are being tested who are symptomatic, but it's people being tested who are symptomatic enough generally to seek testing and to be in a place where testing is offered to people with their level of symptoms. So undoubtedly the mortality rate is overestimated, just the question is by how much. And you know, if it's a mortality rate of 1%, that's still quite serious. Uh, but it, it, it has to be overestimated just because we're not, as, as Tyler said, unfortunately, and, and I'm scratching my head about this as well, there have not been population-based representative uh, studies that would give us an understanding of how many people have been infected, have completed their infection, are actively infected, et cetera. And the technology is there to do that. I'm not sure why it hasn't happened. Tar, uh, Far and Tyler. Uh, am, I, am I right that we just have no way of estimating the mortality uh, rate or the rate of other severe uh, problems from the measures we have necessarily taken to fight the disease, from the lockdown? Am I right about that? Or are there sophisticated measures of at least um, having a rough understanding of those rates? No, I mean, Depression rates, these kinds of things. If we did um, nationally representative testing, uh, we and, and followed the individuals who were tested sufficiently long and, and knew about the diagnostic characteristics of those tests, we would know what the infection mortality rate is. It takes a little while for the uh, um, infection to spread, for the epidemic to, to continue, to have enough data to estimate those. But at, at this point, we we could if we made. Um, the efforts. You know, I think the tests are rightly or wrongly being devoted to those um, who are experiencing the, the, the severe symptoms, um, and, and, and that's beneficial to know how to um, um, treat or attempt to treat these, these individuals. But I think given the societal implications and that this is uh, something we are struggling with throughout the world, it would be at best to devote some portion of those testing resources to, to representative testing. But, but what I was asking about is what do we know about mortality rates and the rates of other undesirable things that 
are the result of the measures that we've taken to fight the virus. In other words, uh, depression, uh, suicide, other uh, perhaps in some cases fatal uh, results of people not being able to get out, people not being able to uh, get to medical care uh, as promptly as otherwise they might. What do we know about that, if anything? Maybe we don't know anything. Maybe we can't know, but is there a way to know? I mean, we, we certainly know that um, depression, that that loneliness, that, that lack of social support, that, that unemployment uh, does lead to, to higher mortality, and there are very good studies indicating this, it becomes a little bit more difficult to, to estimate what is the direct impact of the measures we're taking on depression and then how does that lead to, to mortality that, that could be done sort of with the back of an envelope calculation. It would be a bit um, speculative, but that the measures we've put in place are contributing uh, to, to increased mortality uh, as, as well is, uh, is, is very clear. Um, and I, I think if one is going to begin this exercise of doing the, the trade-offs, that, that should be taken into account uh, as well. However, given the level of uncertainty we, we have, um, and I do think the, the lockdown measures and the social distancing are, are, are good because what we really want to prevent is the extreme scenario of this spreading everywhere and, and killing um, millions and tens of millions hundreds of millions of, uh, of people. That, that scenario now doesn't seem overly likely, but um, you know, in the absence of, of information, I think it is important to try to protect against that uh, possibility. But we, we may well be moving into the uh, territory in the months ahead, where if infection mortality rates aren't particularly high, uh, that the, the real trade-offs with regard to, to, to life from the infection uh, versus unemployment, depression, social isolation might, might be um, of, of a comparable magnitude, but it, it really is, I would say, too early to, to say whether that might be so or not. Robbie, let me, let me pose a question um, to you. Um, I mean, particularly given your kind of expertise as a constitutional scholar, a political philosopher, because I think what your questions to Tyler were, were really getting at is that um, policymakers have to be concerned with the common good. And the common good here is multifaceted, right? It's not just saving as many lives as possible, but it's also the economic considerations. It's the human flourishing considerations. It's the depression, the anxiety, the loneliness, right? All of those things need to be taken into consideration. So my, my question to you is, given the American system of government, with the separation of powers, with federalism, how should we think about the appropriate role of government at various levels in responding uh, to the current crisis? How should we be thinking about the role of cities, states, the federal government, and what should policymakers be thinking about? What, what principles should be informing their thinking as they, uh, especially as, as we think about you know, getting back to somewhat like normal? Right? How do we think through these questions at the constitutional political level? Well, you've given me a, a complex, multifaceted question. Really, it's a set of uh, related uh, uh, questions. Uh, at the heart of our civilization, um, at the heart of ethics itself, is that principle of the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. Uh, those of us who come from the Judeo 
uh, Christian traditions, the biblical traditions, those of us who are Jewish or Christian, I believe it's similar uh, in the uh, Islamic faith. But certainly for those who come from a biblical background, we understand that as rooted in the idea that man is made in the very image and likeness of God, in the very image and likeness of the divine ruler and the creator of the universe. And that's the source of our dignity. But whether one recognizes uh, the religious uh, foundation of that or um, understands it differently, that principle is there not just as a religious and moral principle, but as a civilizational principle. And it's also expressed in our constitutional system, in our constitutional law, in our legal system. Even if we step back behind the Constitution itself to the actual founding document, in a sense, the, the pre-constitutional Constitution of the United States, the Declaration of Independence, we find that principle. Uh, the Declaration says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Notice it's not an exhaustive list. It says among these. Uh, these, are, these are examples, obviously leading examples. And then in our Constitution, we attempt to protect that principle and all that follows from it by uh, ensuring that power is checked so that nobody can use power in an abusive way. And we do that, our founding fathers did that in several different ways. One way was to uh, distinguish two levels of government. A national government, which is limited in that it is a government of delegated and enumerated powers. It possesses and may legitimately exercise only those powers delegated to it in the Constitution. So if we look at uh, uh, the first article of the Constitution in Section 8, we see set forth there a list of the powers granted to Congress to advance the common good, um, but, but within the constraints of those delegated powers. All other powers are reserved to the states, which are not governments of delegated and enumerated powers, but are rather governments of general jurisdiction exercising what in our tradition we call police powers. This is the plenary authority to uh, protect public health, safety, and morals, and to advance the common good. So at the state level, for example, the governors have a kind of broader authority in a certain sense than we have at the national government with the president, who is a member of the uh, a national government, is the executive of the national government, is constrained by the delegated powers theory. And even within the national government, and this is also true in the case of the states, if we look at their own constitutions, the states each have a constitution. Within the national government, we have a separation, a division of powers. Uh, the, the, the president's powers are checked by the Congress, the Congress by the president. Uh, the Supreme Court can check the powers of the other two branches of government. It's a very interesting question about who checks the court or how that takes place, but the, the powers are separated. Now at the edges, obviously, there are gray areas, there are fuzzy areas, and there are turf wars, say, between the executive and the legislative branch or between the judicial and the executive branch, a famous uh, conflict uh, between the executive and the uh, courts uh, came in the run-up to the, to the Civil War uh, when Lincoln uh, promised that he would, as president, defy, which he then did do, uh, the ruling which he considered uh, not only unjust but deeply unconstitutional of the court in the Dred Scott case 
uh, expanding slavery, protecting slavery in the uh, federal territories of the United States. Uh, and then there's a third way. So in addition to the separation of the national and the state powers uh, and the separation of powers within each level, we actually have specific constitutional guarantees of civil liberties. These are mainly, not exclusively, but mainly contained in the initial amendments to the Constitution. Uh, the first eight amendments, or uh, depending on how you calculate, nine amendments uh, to the Constitution, and uh, the 14th Amendment enacted uh, after the Civil War. Uh, these are the famous guarantees that we're familiar with, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. They begin with the very first freedom, the freedom of religion, the right to the free exercise of religion. Now, obviously, in this pandemic, all of these things are being implicated. Uh, so, for example, uh, if people want to protest the government's policies, may they assemble to protest or may the government prevent the assembly? Uh, Tyler mentioned uh, uh, worship services. Uh, all the various faiths now are under uh, rules in many states that forbid them from gathering for worship. Is that constitutionally permissible? That turns out to be actually a complex question. I can, Ryan, if you if you like, get into some of the details of that. But the first I was going to pitch that to Melissa. Mm -hmm. uh, I was going to pitch that to Melissa. Okay. That to Melissa. The, the, the thing to, uh, to notice first, though, is that there is an issue there. There's an argument to be made on competing sides of, of the issue. And I think the answer is not a straightforward one. Sure, the government may shut down religious service whenever it wants if there's a public health crisis. Or the opposite answer, that no, that uh, 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 religious gatherings need to be permitted no matter what the circumstances are. So these are complex issues. We have to respect the distinction between the different levels of government. We have to respect the separation of powers within the levels of government. And we have to respect civil liberties while still acknowledging, especially when it comes to the states, still acknowledging that those states do exercise police powers, which are broad, which are plenary, which are general, to protect public health and safety. Perfect. Um, so, so let me pitch it now to Melissa, because as Robbie just mentioned, how we think about civil liberties in the time of a pandemic, a crisis like this, isn't going to be uh, black and white, right? This is going to be a difficult question. Um, we saw just yesterday, Attorney General Barr issued a really good letter mm -hmm. about religious liberty violations and how his office is looking into those. Uh, we've already seen um, some cities uh, back down on previous uh, mm -hmm. policies that they had enacted. How should we think about the free exercise of religion um, many of us couldn't go to our churches, our houses of worship mm -hmm. during Passover, during Easter. Um, how should we think about uh, religious liberty freedoms while we're sheltering in place, while we have shutdowns, while we have social distancing? What's, what's the right way to think about this? Well, as you say, it's a very complicated question uh, because, of course, religious liberty is really a bedrock human freedom and one that is explicitly protected in the First Amendment of, of the Constitution. And so, but that doesn't mean that uh, it's always illegitimate to limit the ability of people, for instance, to gather to worship. There could be extreme circumstances like the one that we're in that would make that legitimate. So I think a couple of principles need to be kept in mind in thinking about this. The first is that it would always be illegitimate for the government to single out religion for special discrimination. So for instance, uh, it would be wrong for the government to say, well, we're going to forbid religious services 
of over 50 people if we don't also forbid every other gathering of over 50 people, unless there were something specific about religious services that made them more likely to transmit disease or something like that in this, in this circumstance. Um, so the, any laws that would impinge on the, the free exercise of religion need to be neutral, generally applicable. They need to apply to anybody in the relevant circumstances. It can't be anything that in any way singles out religion as, at a special, puts religion at a special disadvantage. But the other thing also is that uh, given the, the great importance of religion for, uh, for human flourishing, giving it its great importance as a kind of first freedom, uh, bedrock civil liberty, uh, I think that uh, the standard that is set out in uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, federally and uh, on many state levels is the right standard in principle. Not every state has a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, but the standard it sets forth, I think, is the right principle of justice by which we should think about uh, when state limitations on religious uh, exercise are justified. And that what that standard says is that the state may only burden the exercise of religion if, number one, uh, there is a compelling state interest, right? Not just a reason, uh, but a really compelling, uh, really, really important state interest, and that any limitation on religious exercise for that compelling state interest needs to be narrowly tailored to the interest at stake. So there has to be sort of no other less burdensome way to achieve the compelling interest uh, that is the rationale for the limitation on, on religion. And I think that we can see in this time of pandemic in which you know what the what the data makes clear is that the most dangerous thing, the greatest source of the rapid spread of this virus are situations in which you have large groups of people in very friendly close contact. And so uh, clearly any kinds of large, large gatherings, large conferences, um, and also including uh, large gatherings for religious worship, which involve again, friendly contact, often also things like receiving communion and uh, you know, shaking hands, uh, signs of peace, uh, close warm relationships, uh, gathered in, you know, in, in closed spaces, right? All of these things we know are highly conducive to the spreading of the virus. And, and therefore there's a reason across the board, a compelling state interest in terms of the protection of human life and health to, for a time, uh, forbid such large gatherings. But again, uh, that's because there's a compelling interest and yes, it's a burden on the free exercise of religion, but there's no less burdensome way at this point uh, to achieve that goal. Uh, but again, it has to be even-handed. So, uh, you know, if a if you're permitted to, you know, have a, a kind of uh, drive-through uh, restaurant, or if you're permitted to to pick up uh, takeout from your local grocery store, or to you know curbside pickup of of alcohol or things like that, well, then we also need to be even-handed and allow for analogous exercises of, of religion where, you know, perhaps for Catholics curbside uh, confessions or, uh, you know, some uh, religious groups have tried, you know, parking lot services where individuals are enclosed in their cars, windows, windows up, right? So no uh, real risk of infection. And, and you know, the minister is there uh, broadcasting and over a loudspeaker, a religious service. That seems to be uh, no more risky than other sorts of things that we are 
allowing. So I think the key thing is to make sure that uh, religion is not given any kind of special uh, disadvantage. Perfect. Thank you. You know, the um, the way that you uh, clarified, you know, what a compelling state interest is, it immediately made me think of the Little Sisters of the Poor um, mm -hmm. and their court case, because, you know, when they're not suing the federal government, they're caring for people who are elderly and are approaching death. And they're caring mm -hmm. for those people right now uh, in the middle of this pandemic. Some of their uh, residents um, do have coronavirus. Uh, and this just shows you what the Little Sisters are doing. And if it's a compelling state interest to combat coronavirus, if that's kind of a, a good example, how is forcing the Little Sisters of the Poor to have their health care plan cover contraception and abortion, how is that a compelling state interest? And it, it shows you just how kind of ridiculous it was um, for the previous presidential administration. And now for several states, uh, their, their attorneys general, they're suing the Trump administration because the Trump administration won't further harass these nuns. It's, it's really just uh, remarkable. We need to um, quickly get to our audience questions, uh, but I want to ask one last question, um, particularly for Tyler and for Farr. And this is the question, we don't know how much longer uh, these shutdowns, these sheltering in place orders, the social distancing measures will um, remain. How can we flourish while still under these conditions? Uh, uh, Tyler, you had written an essay for public discourse looking at some of your research at Harvard. Um, what are the lessons we can learn uh, even if we do have to be socially distanced, if we're not going to be able to go to large gatherings, what can we do? What uh, uh, kind of practices can we practice to maintain a semblance of, of happiness and flourishing? Tyler, I think you're muted. That's it. Yes, yes. That's a very good question, uh, Ryan. And um, uh, I, I think an important one, a difficult one at, at, at present, because there, there will um, inevitably be difficulties and, and, and loss, economic difficulties, loss of loss of health, loss of lives. Um, and we do what we can to, to, to mitigate uh, those, but I, I mean, I think we need to accept that there will be those losses. Um, on, on the other aspects of well-being, I think there are things that, uh, that can be done um, with regard to um, trying, trying to find uh, meaning and purpose. There's clear evidence that sort of helping those around you does does uh, contribute uh, to that. Uh, um, neighbor and the townhouse association which we, we live offered to pick up groceries for um, elderly neighbors so that they uh, weren't exposed. Infections particularly difficult um, and, and uh, dangerous for for them. Um, I think finding finding ways to assist uh, those within the family or, or outside uh, can, can provide some sense of Purpose. I think trying to connect with uh, with others, uh, use these uh, video technologies that we now have to, you know, as best as possible, emulate uh, those face-to-face -face relationships, and perhaps use the time to to invest in a child or a spouse or a, a housemate that simply wasn't possible before because of uh, uh, time constraints. Um, and even with something like like happiness, which for many seems to be particularly elusive now, some of the uh, work in psychology suggests practicing gratitude three times a week. Write down three things that you're, you're, you're grateful for. Um, in, in rigorous randomized trials, suggests that you know levels of happiness uh, are increased, and levels of depression, depressive symptoms, actually come down. So these are I mean, these are small things uh, that 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 can be 
done and, and a lot of the more substantial um, you know, institutional pathways to flourishing like, like work, like education, like religious communities. Th th these are under pretty severe restrictions, but even there things can be done. Uh, homeschooling of, of children, many workplaces have found creative ways to allow work to, to, to go on. Uh, religious communities have uh, put together online uh, services or even as Melissa indicated, drive through uh, prayer or confession. Um, all of these things aren't going to be fully adequate. There, there will be um, suffering and, and loss. Um, but I, you know, I think there are at least some things that we can do to, to, to try to improve our, our relationships, um, to try to help uh, those around us, um, and, and to acknowledge uh, what is still good in, in our lives and in society. Just add, Ryan, that if you can't be with the ones you love, love the ones you're with. And uh, we're with uh, the core people that we're, most of us, with family. Uh, it's a good time to, to, to give thanks for the remarkable gift that is to have one another and see that that primary human economy is the family, is the household, uh, and uh, to invest in and enjoy and delight in that, even as we look out for those who are really made lonely and vulnerable during this time. And I will say, as I teach at Duke Divinity School, so I think I'd want to say to remember that God has not abandoned us and that uh, you can be alone and not be lonely if you are experiencing um, God and paying attention to how God is present to you. So this is a time to remember that. That's beautiful. Th thank you. Um, we're going to turn now to audience questions. We have 10 minutes left. Um, and so if you're watching this and you want to submit a question, um, go to the question box in the webinar and you can uh, submit your question. One of my colleagues is reading through them and um, uh, uh, sending them to me. Um, so here's a question. It, it's, I think it's probably for Far, for Robbie, for Melissa, for whoever wants to take this. It's a bioethical question. It's from Father Bob Gall. A moral theologian. Uh, his question is, how do we respect the principle of equality while also prioritizing care for people like first responders? And can we prioritize care for other people who have special social roles? Uh, and so I can think, you know, um, can we prioritize care for political leaders or for uh, parents, especially parents with small children or pregnant mothers, right? I mean, are there certain ways in which um, the prioritization of care um, can be done beyond just first responders, or would other uh, priority principles violate the equality principle that you and, and the kind of human dignity principle that you uh, started us with? Well, let me begin on uh, that one, Ryan. It's an excellent question from uh, Father Gold. Uh, first of all, let me say, I think that there are some reasons that don't have to do with any alleged uh, inferior quality of life that would uh, provide a justification for um, assigning resources that are scarce to one person or pers members of one category rather than another. Everything depends on the reasons, but I would say we have to distinguish, once we get that body of uh, reasons onto the table, things like, well, first responders, uh, mothers of small children, 
that means they're eligible for consideration because they're not ruled out as violating the principle of equal dignity because they're not reasons that have to do with declaring anybody else to be inferior. But then within the consideration of that body of reasons that are not ruled out, I think we have to be very, very, very cautious. Uh, first responders, yes. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Our reason for favoring them with the equipment, again, is not any alleged inherent dignity. It's because we need them to save as many people as we can save. If we, if we lose our medical people, we lose our first responders, then the death toll is going to go way up. Their, their ability to work benefits um, everybody. So that looks like a pretty clear case of a permissible reason that's not invidiously discriminatory. You go beyond that, just a room for uh, concern about pretexts and corruption becomes greater. Obviously, we would want uh, mothers of small children to get um, uh, preference if possible because those kids are dependent on them in the same way that people who are afflicted by COVID-19 or anything else are dependent on people who provide first responses and, and medical care. But once we've opened up the system in that way, the possibility of illegitimate preference, of corruption of the system begins to grow. So we need to proceed there very, very cautiously. And we probably have to put up some fences. That is, there are reasons that are in principle, in principle might be legitimate, but we're going to have to exclude because the risk of abuse is too high. I'd welcome other people's thoughts about this. This is a very- I, I will thank, I'll just add, I agree with Robbie. I mean, the, insofar as you start uh, making more exceptions for certain groups receiving priority, and even more if you start making exceptions to rule out certain groups as receiving priority, as having lower priority, you um, run tremendous risks of um, invidious discrimination and, and within the margins of human judgment, allowing uh, the kinds of prejudices to creep in that we want to keep out of these decisions. I'll just say that another complication for clinicians is that if there is one thing that is necessary for the working of the health profession. It is that the that people trust that when they are sick and they show up into the presence of a practitioner of medicine, they will be cared for based on their sickness and the fact that their health needs preserving and restoring without respect to any other characteristics. And insofar as doctors are involved in making judgments that are not related to the health of the patient, but related to who's who's more worthy of treatment, who, who is not, that's going to undermine that trust. And that's one of the side effects that might be grave enough to forego fine-tuning um, who gets priority, even where there might be justified reasons for giving one group priority over another. That's really helpful. And, and I'm going to reveal a little bit about the private deliberations that went on as we were all working on that joint statement that we produced. You know, we had internal disagreements about, you know, as a principled matter, could you use some of these other considerations uh, for prioritization? Um, and the moral philosophers were very interested in thinking through, you know, under what circumstance would this be reasonable, unreasonable? And I think one of the um, kind of insight of wisdom um, that Farr, Hugh, and some of the other medical doctors brought was, look, in practice, 
this will be abused. And so even if kind of like hypothetically for the sake of argument, you could find situations in which it would be reasonable to you know appeal to X, Y, and Z consideration, in this moment in our culture, the way in which we already degrade the lives of, discount the lives of people with disabilities, of people who are elderly, um, this will be abused in a way that will invidiously discriminate against them. And, and so I think that distinction is really important so that, you know, so the philosophers can see, uh, so I can see, right, as, as speaking for myself, that um, you need to think about how do your principles come to bear in practice uh, and which of those principles could be open for abuse and what sort of guardrails uh, do you need? We have time for one last question. And, and I think, Tyler, this is a question for you, um, but it could be for anyone. So I'll, I'll pitch it first to Tyler and then feel free uh, anyone else to join in. How should we think about the arguments currently being made um, that the shutdowns are doing more harm to lives, to livelihoods, to flourishing um, than we would if we just opened things back up and we took the risk of infection? Uh, and, and I imagine part of your response could be, this is part of the problem of not having sufficient data. Um, but elaborate on this. Yeah, I think it is a question that we uh, need to struggle with and will need to struggle with as a society, as you suggested, Ryan, without um, without good data, um, it, it becomes very difficult to make these decisions. And in the absence of that, given the uncertainty and given the potential for, for, for a really terrible outcome with regard to the spread of this infection, I mean, I, I do think a more conservative approach initially is the right way forward. Um, but it may well turn out to be the case uh, going forward that um, we need to be concerned about a wave two of this epidemic and um, whether another shutdown will be necessary. Um, hopefully by then we'll, we'll, we'll have um, better uh, data. And, and then I think these considerations and these weighing of options will become real. And I think that's when we're going to have to go uh, back to the, you know, the question that, that, that Robbie raised as, as well. Um, what are the costs of, um, of depression, of loneliness, of unemployment with regard to their effects on uh, mortality? And so I, I think we should begin uh, to develop frameworks on, on how we're going to evaluate those difficult decisions. So while the lockdown might be reasonable now, it, it, it might not be uh, in, in, in six months time. We do need more data, but we do need to be thinking clearly about these trade-offs. Perfect. Uh, I just want to give a chance to any of the panelists, if you have any kind of additional thought, closing comment you want to make where we have one minute left. So now is your time. Speak now or you know, forever hold your peace. Well, Ryan, can I just take us back to the beginning in closing? At the core, at the root, the thing to be fundamentally kept in mind because it's so easy to let it slip. And I hope that everyone out there who's listening in and who's watching will remember we have to hold fast in our medicine, in our law, in our politics to the principle of the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. As long as we keep that steadily in mind, truly steadily in mind, we won't go too far wrong. Great. Here, here. A perfect, perfect way to end this. Um, let me just take one minute to thank the four of you. You're all incredibly busy researchers and teachers. I know, Robbie, you have to go teach a class uh, in FARS program at Duke in a couple of minutes. So um, I thank you all uh, for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us today. I thank you to the 
attendees who have been watching this in the live stream. It'll be archived, so you'll be able to share this um, webinar with uh, friends and family if you found it of help. Um, and so thank you again and have a good afternoon.